At the end of John chapter 2 and verse 25, it says that Jesus knew what was in man. This is an obvious preface to at least the next two encounters that we read about in the Gospel of John moving on from the end of chapter 2. Nicodemus in chapter 3 and then the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. In both of those instances, Jesus demonstrates remarkable knowledge about what was really going on in their hearts. He knew what was in Nicodemus. He knew what was in the Samaritan woman. We go from men in general at the end of chapter 2 to this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 1. We'll get to the Samaritan woman in due time and see that Jesus deals with her in a similar way. But in the passage before us today, in the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus bypasses the small talk, the pleasantries, and steers the conversation straight to the real issues in his conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus knew that Nicodemus' concern was related to the kingdom of God. And Jesus cut straight to the heart of the matter. And as one commentator put it, the heart of the matter, in this case, was the matter of the heart. Let me explain. Nicodemus had some sort of knowledge of an interest in the kingdom of God, based on Old Testament expectation. He knew that there is such a thing as the kingdom of God. Obadiah prophesied the extension of Israel's borders in an expansive kingdom encompassing Gentile lands. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This passage in Obadiah and others in the Old Testament taught the Israelites that they should expect God's rule and reign to manifest itself for their sake on behalf of God's people Nicodemus knew that that there is such a thing as the coming kingdom of God and Nicodemus knew that it was connected to the Messiah as we observed only a few weeks ago Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 connects the kingdom to the Messiah I saw in the night visions And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 7 is another well-known passage touching this theme. It is David's son of whom God says, I will establish the throne of his 
kingdom forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, picks up this theme and says, Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Good Jews understood that not only was God's rule and reign to manifest itself in latter times, but they knew that it would manifest itself through the Messiah, through a son of David, through, as Daniel 7 teaches us, a son of man. In view of these things, it seems that Nicodemus was wondering whether Jesus was the Messiah and whether the kingdom of God was therefore at hand, as the other gospel writers put it. He comes to Jesus by night and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Doesn't it, doesn't it sound like there's a but coming? Right? But I have a few questions for you. Or something like this. This seems to be the spirit of what he's leading with. Right? Whether or not he intended to continue there, or whether he intended for Jesus to respond and then continue. It seems that what he's doing is he's coming and stating something that he knows. But, and exploring this issue further with Jesus. Jesus cuts straight to the chase. He points out an issue that presented itself immediately as he looked upon Nicodemus's heart. Understood that Nicodemus had some questions about the coming kingdom, about the messiahship. Jesus points out first in what seems to be an irrelevant response. That Nicodemus needed to be born again if he was ever going to see the kingdom of God that he was ostensibly looking for. Nicodemus comes and says, we know that you're a teacher from God and Jesus is like, listen, you need to be born again if you're ever going to see the kingdom. You see that it seems unrelated, but what is happening here is that Jesus sees that He's coming, looking for the kingdom, looking for the Messiah. He knows something about Jesus, but He has some more questions. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which was the matter of His heart, and says, listen, before we go any further, let's settle this foundational issue. If you're ever going to see the kingdom of God that you're ostensibly looking for, You need a heart change. You need to be born again. Many people today are much like Nicodemus. They're religious. Even religious according to the Judeo-Christian tradition. But they are in need of the new birth. They know, therefore... Nothing of the kingdom 
of God that they're supposedly looking for. Modern Jews are still waiting for a Messiah. They're still waiting for a kingdom. They're looking to see a Messiah appear. They're looking to see a kingdom come. If Jesus could address them as a man, He would say the same thing that He said to Nicodemus. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom that you claim to be looking for. And cultural Christians, they're comfortable with words like Messiah, Christ, Kingdom. You yell loud enough and get animated enough and say hallelujah enough and kingdom enough and Christ enough and gospel enough and you get some amens from these people, but they know nothing of the kingdom of God and of His Christ. Cultural Christians need to be born again if they're ever going to see this kingdom that people are preaching about. If they're ever going to understand anything of this Christ and this gospel that is talked about so often which deserves and demands hallelujahs and amens. Like someone might drop the name of a famous person casually into a conversation without true knowledge of the person whose name they're using. So Christ is on the lips of the cultural Christian, but they don't really know Him. In John chapter 3, the heart of the matter was the matter of Nicodemus' heart. And even today, this morning, the heart of the matter is your heart. In my heart. Have you been born again? Have I been born again? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter that you're here. It doesn't matter that you've read the Bible. It doesn't matter that you call yourself a Christian. Have you been born again? If not, all of your cultural Christianity gets you as close to Christ as calling Robert De Niro, Robert, gets you to Him. It doesn't matter if you name drop. You don't know Him. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And to this statement, Nicodemus raises the very sort of questions that you might be raising this morning. Or the sort of questions that you raised, perhaps, when you first heard these things a while back. Nicodemus asks about the nature and the mechanics of being born again. You hear me say, you must be born again, and maybe you're sitting here thinking, what does that even mean? 
It's, it's Christianese, right? In our day and age, you hear people talk about being born again. Being born again. I'm a born again Christian. You need to be born again. He got born again. People say all kinds of things about it. What does it mean to be born again? Nicodemus asks about the nature and the mechanics of being born again. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's a rhetorical question, which is actually designed to eliminate itself as being a possibility. Nicodemus isn't actually wondering, can you? Can you pass back through the birth canal into the womb and then come again? He's not asking that. It's as if Nicodemus said, we know that a man can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. So, look now at his first question. How then can a man be born when he's old? That's the thrust of that pair of questions. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he climb up again into his mother's womb and be born? It's like he's saying, we know that that can't happen. So how is it that a man can be born when he's old? What do you mean, Jesus, about being born again? What kind of process is this? The mechanics are not going back into the womb and passing through the birth canal a second time. So what are the mechanics of the new birth? The nature of the process can't be that, so what then is it? Notice that Jesus begins answering his questions. And Nicodemus reiterates in verse 9, how can these things be? Nicodemus wants to know what the new birth is, how the new birth works, and Nicodemus is incredulous when Jesus explains it to him. That's a high-level summary of what's happening in this passage. Can you relate to Nicodemus? You want to know what the new birth is, how it works. Perhaps you're already incredulous at the thought of the new birth. With a view to understanding the passage more deeply and addressing the questions of Nicodemus' heart and yours, let's look closer at Jesus' teaching on the second birth in response to Nicodemus' line of questioning. First, regarding the source of the new birth, Jesus is quite clear that the Spirit is the source of the new birth. Look at verses 5 and 6 and 8. In verse 5, the main idea is that someone needs to be born of more than just water. He needs to be born of the Spirit if he's to enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born of water? There are a few options. Some posit that it refers to water baptism. Either John's or the forthcoming explicitly Christian baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The point would then be that water baptism is insufficient Unless it's accompanied by the new birth from the Spirit. 
Others posit a second option, namely that the water mentioned here is the Old Testament cleansing rituals, purification prescribed by God in the Torah, which are insufficient in themselves unless accompanied by the new birth of the Spirit. Still others posit that the water referred to here is amniotic fluid and that Jesus is contrasting merely natural birth with spiritual birth in verse 5, just as he does in verse 6. You see, if that's the case, you see the parallelism in verses 5 and 6. Unless one is born of water, that is naturally, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Each has their its merits and demerits. Whatever the case, the main point is not that we realize the necessity of being born of water. This passage isn't, you must be born of water. The point of verse 5, whatever the water is, is that being born of water alone is insufficient. And you must also be born of the Spirit. The point here isn't that you realize, oh, I don't know if I've been born of water. The point here is that you realize, oh, I don't know if I've been born of the Spirit. And I know from this verse that I must be born not only of water, but also the Spirit. The Spirit gives birth to people. And unless the Spirit gives birth to you, according to verse 5, unless between the day that you were born, naturally, to your biological parents, and the day that they bury you in the ground or cremate you, unless between point A and point B, the Holy Spirit births you, you will not enter the kingdom of God. In verse 5, that's the main idea. In verse 6, the main idea is that you don't merely need something physical to happen but something spiritual. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The main point in verse 6 is that you don't merely need something physical to happen, but something spiritual. It's not just your body that needs to be born, but your spirit somehow needs to be reborn. And your parents can birth you physically, but your parents can't birth you spiritually. If you need a spiritual rebirth, your parents can't do that for you. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you need a spiritual rebirth, the Spirit of God must do it. In verse 8, the main idea is the method of the Spirit's work. In the new birth, which we'll turn our attention to now. But just notice in passing that it also clearly asserts that it is the Spirit who gives the new birth. You can't rebirth yourself. You can't make yourself be born again. It is the Spirit who does it. We sang at the beginning that... Selection from the Genevan Psalter based on Psalm 100. Without our aid, He did us make. 
We could add in verse, in view of John chapter 3, without our aid, He did us remake. He did give us rebirth. We were reborn spiritually without our aid. This passage clearly teaches us that it is the Spirit of God who gives the new birth. Verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. Turning our attention now from the source of the new birth, which is the Spirit, to the method of the Spirit's work in the new birth. Let's zoom in on John chapter 3 and verse 8 and see what Jesus says. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Does Jesus mean that those who are born again are like the wind? Or does He mean that the Spirit's work upon those who are born again is like the wind? It's the latter. The Spirit's work upon those who are born again is like the wind. We know for a couple of reasons that Jesus does not mean that those who are born again are like the wind. First, John is not talking in this passage about the work of the recipient of the new birth. That would be completely, it would be completely foreign to the context if all of a sudden he started talking about the recipient of the new birth and what they do. Because that's not what he's talking about in this passage. He's talking about the Spirit's work. He's not talking about the baby. He's talking about the mother, so to speak. Second, as you'll see in the footnote at the end of verse 6, if you're using the ESV, the same Greek word means both wind and spirit. Thus, the comparison is not between people and wind, but between the spirit and wind. It's not as obvious in our English text, but it would be very obvious to the original reader that the comparison Jesus is drawing is not between people and wind, but spirit and wind. And this fits with the biblical imagery of the spirit as wind in other places. Jesus is teaching that in verse 8, that the spirits work upon those who are born again The Spirit's work upon those who are born again is like the wind. Notice a few things. The Spirit works sovereignly in the new birth. The Spirit works as the wind does, as He wishes. If the comparison here is between the Spirit and the wind, we're meant to infer that what is true about the wind is true about the Spirit. Otherwise, Jesus is wasting His breath. He's teaching us something by making a comparison. He's saying, this is like that. So when He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and the wind is like the Spirit, then He's saying, the Spirit works Where He wishes, as He wishes, the Spirit, no less God than the Father and the Son, acts in giving the new birth according to His sovereign pleasure. 
Just as the wind isn't at your beck and call, neither is the Holy Spirit. The wind doesn't blow where you wish. The wind blows where it wishes. The Holy Spirit doesn't do what you want. The Holy Spirit does what He wants. On a still day, humid, we may wish that there was a breeze. We might wish that some wind would come up. But we can't do anything about it. So it is. So it is with the work of the Spirit in the new birth. He blows where He wishes. The Spirit, secondly, works manifestly in the new birth. That is obviously and perceivably in the new birth. Jesus says, you hear the wind's sound. How do you know if the wind's blowing? What do you mean, how do you know if the wind's blowing? Look, the leaves are moving. You hear it. It's rustling. How do you know if someone is born again? It's manifest. It's obvious. It's perceivable. It's not really a profound question to ask if someone is born again or not born again. Just like it's not really rocket science to know whether the wind's blowing or not. I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer a couple of years ago. And he was talking about the new birth as being hit by a truck. If someone came into a church meeting and said, man, I was run over by a truck on the way to church. And he said, what do you mean? They said, I was literally standing in the middle of the road and a truck came and ran right over me. You wouldn't believe that? Because when a truck hits you, it's manifest. It's obvious. It's perceivable. You only believe someone has been hit by a truck when they're lying crushed and bleeding on the road. And there's a truck pulled over with its four ways on and the police are there on the scene taking notes. That's when you believe that someone was hit by a truck. And so it is manifest when someone is born again. Why can't you see the kingdom of God without being born again? Scripture would say because the God of this world has blinded your eyes, your mind. The Scripture would say because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The Scripture would say because you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The scripture would tell us not in so many words, but implicitly. Because you're not really looking for the kind of kingdom that God's bringing, but you're you're looking for the kind of kingdom that you would run if you were the king. This, This moral defect, this spiritual blindness that is brought on by Adam's sin. In other words, you're born corrupt. You're born with this blindness, but you compound it by your own sin. 
There's no well-meaning person that would otherwise believe if it just wasn't for Adam. But here he is, fettered, wishing to be free, but for Adam. No, we're party to our own captivity. We're party to our own blindness. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. By one man's sin, the many died. The scripture says all of these things are working in conjunction. But you're dead. You don't have eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of Christ. You don't have eyes to see and ears to hear about the way His kingdom works. How you enter it. What it's like there. How wonderful it is. You might hear those things in your ears. But it's like when someone tells you something you don't want to hear. And you have that selective hearing. Like, maybe your boss is like, why didn't you do that thing I asked you to do last week? And you're like, oh, I forgot. Maybe you forgot, but maybe you kind of remembered a few times and suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. There's a moral defect. There's a hatred, a a resentment of God's existence. Like, I wish He wasn't there so we could have more fun. I wish there was no cat so that the mice could play. You resent His very existence. Then you resent His claim upon you. At least, at least, if only, He was like the God of the deists who wound this world up like a clock but doesn't care what happens going forward. At least if He was like that, I could accept Him. But He's not. He commands people everywhere to repent. And you resent that too. And you hear what it's like in His kingdom. That in there, you're not allowed to have any other gods but Him. You can't make no images and you've got to reverence His name and keep the Sabbath day. You've got to honor your mother and father and those who are in authority over you. No murder, no adultery, no stealing. And not just at the overt level. Not just those to the nth degree, but those in the minutest degree. The sins of the heart. No bearing false witness, no coveting. I don't even want to live in that kingdom. The unregenerate man says. And then you hear how you've got to enter it. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't bring anything. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You mean just trust in Him? Yeah, just trust in Him. You can't do anything. You're powerless. You're weak. You're impotent. No, I'm not. The unregenerate person says. You're beginning to see why... Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You're beginning to see. But when the Spirit works, giving the new birth, 
He works manifestly. Not just sovereignly, but manifestly. Obviously, perceivably. Where there was no interest in these things, now you want to know. Where you didn't care, now you care. Where you resented God's very existence, now you're glad that there is a God in heaven. And you're glad that He's not the God of the deists who just wound it up and let it go. You're glad that He knows how many hairs are on your head. And that He says, cast your cares upon Me, for I care for you. You like that. And you like that He commands all people everywhere to repent. And you like that He says He's going to gather evildoers out of His kingdom. Because you want to live not only in a new heavens and in a new earth, but you want to live in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And instead of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, you're like David, who said, I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. You're like David. Who said, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You used to mock and scoff at Jesus as those who passed by the cross as He hung there derided Him and wagged their heads. And now you exclaim with Thomas, My Lord and my God. You used to try to make provision for the flesh. But now by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. There's a change when you're born again. And if there's no change, you haven't been born again. To one who understands biblical doctrine properly, saying that you're born again when there's been no change sounds as stupid as saying that the wind is blowing when none of the leaves on the tree are moving. And everybody's just suffocating from the humidity and the stillness of the air. Those two things sound equally plausible. So the Spirit works sovereignly in the new birth. The Spirit works manifestly in the new birth. There's an obvious and a perceivable change. The Spirit works mysteriously in the new birth. Just as you don't know exactly how or from whence the wind came and went, but you know that the wind came and went because you heard its sound, you felt it, it was manifest. So you don't know exactly how the Spirit comes and goes, so to speak. But if you've experienced the new birth, you know that He's been there because something has changed. You heard the wind's sound. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. And the 
religious leaders embark on an interrogation both of him and his parents. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. This is the guy that was healed. He kept saying, I am the man. Then they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He told them, you know, Jesus came, so on and so forth. Then the Pharisees interrogate him. Then they interrogate his parents. And his parents are like, in verse 21, ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. It's like, you know, it'd be like asking my parents. Like, what happened to me? It's like, John's a grown man. Just ask him. So for a second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. Verse 25. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is not the new birth in John chapter 9. But it's analogous to what I'm saying. There were many questions that this man couldn't answer. Including whether Jesus was a sinner. Obviously his doctrine was somewhat superficial. Somewhat poorly formed. But he said, one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. How, exactly how did the Spirit give you new birth? Exactly how is it that He sovereignly acts? Tell me precisely how it is that He manifestly changes a man into a saint. Tell me how it is, exactly, precisely, that He quickened you. As the older theologians would say. Tell us how it is that he made you alive together with Christ. Tell us all the details. Explain it to us. I don't know. One thing I know is I was blind. But now I see. The Spirit works sovereignly. The Spirit works manifestly. But let's admit it, there's some mystery to how the Spirit works. I've told you guys before, the night before I was converted, I was out drinking till like the bars closed, whatever, like 2, 3 a.m. Then I came back to my apartment and I was drinking till like 6. Then I woke up and went to the church, which is a longer story in itself. And then by noon, I was born again. <laughs> There's some mystery in that. How does, how does someone just change? They're just completely different. What used to matter to them doesn't matter at all anymore. And what they used to love, now they hate. And what they used to hate, now they love. How does that happen? You don't know where the wind comes from, where it goes. You just hear its sound. You just know it blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, you know it comes. You know it was there. You don't know exactly how. So it is with the Spirit of God. <clears throat> I was blind, but now I see. So Jesus teaches that the Spirit works sovereignly. 
in the new birth. Manifestly in the new birth. And mysteriously in the new birth. This is all in verse 8. He's taught us thus far in this passage then. That the source of the new birth is the Spirit. Verses 5, 6, and 8. He's taught us something of the way the Spirit works. Verse 8. And thirdly, He's teaching us that the Old Testament witnesses to the new birth. The Old Testament witnesses to the new birth. Though Nicodemus was, in fact, incredulous. In verse 9. How can these things be, he says, after Jesus teaches him that the Spirit makes people new, sovereignly, manifestly, mysteriously? Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus replies, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, he's rebuking Nicodemus. You don't understand the Old Testament very well, do you? And yet you're a teacher of Israel? How can you not know these things? You're tasked to teach young children basic arithmetic. One plus one. One plus two. One plus three. One plus four. Your superior, your supervisor comes in the room. He sees you. One plus four equals eight. Six plus three equals four. Are you the teacher? And you don't know these things? This is something like what's going on in this passage. In fact, Jesus rebukes him, not just with that one statement, But verses 11, 12, and 13 are a sustained rebuke of Nicodemus for not knowing these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, that's plural, y'all or you people, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The question is raised, why does Jesus use the plural in verse 11? We speak of what we know. Some posit that that's Jesus and his disciples. But as we go on in the book of John, we actually see that they, don't, they actually didn't know much to speak of. So, another option is that maybe it's Jesus and His Father, right? or Jesus and His Spirit, or Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. It's a, it's a divine plural. That's possible. I think it's more likely what D.A. Carson puts forward, that Jesus is kind of like teasing Nicodemus for his... Rather presumptuous approach to Jesus in the first place. Nicodemus comes in verse 2 and says, Rabbi, we know 
How many men came? Look at verse 1. A man of the Pharisees. But Nicodemus comes speaking for the teachers of Israel. We know. It seems here that Jesus is kind of doing a similar sort of thing. This is a one-on-one conversation. But as Nicodemus has said, we know. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. We know. And you people don't know. In other words, it's as if Jesus is drawing a line and saying, there are people who know, and you're not one of them. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you people do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Again, the question could be raised, how how is Jesus telling him of earthly things when he's talking about the new birth from above? Well, the simplest answer to this is that though the new birth comes from above, that the Spirit brings it, it happens to people on earth. And that, as Jesus seems to indicate here, it's actually quite a fundamental and basic and primary doctrine of Christianity. It's actually not an advanced doctrine. And so he's like, if I tell you the most basic earthly things about how salvation works, how, how are you going to understand if I tell you even more deep things? And then he says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now this isn't about the passage into heaven. Right? That um, Jesus is not saying that Abraham and David and none of these guys have gone to be with the Lord. That's not the point that Jesus is making in this section. The point that he's making in this section is no one has gone up into heaven to get information in order that they might come down and teach people. Except me. The Son of Man who has descended from heaven. In other words, if you want to know true spiritual teaching, listen to me. So he's moving this conversation forward by rebuking Nicodemus for not knowing and then basically reasserting his own authority to teach. That's what's going on in this section. But in verse 10, back to the basic point, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Jesus is indicating to Nicodemus that he should have known these things. Therefore that the Old Testament bore witness to these things. The new birth, in other words, wasn't a new idea. God's people have been being born again ever since redemption began. Ezekiel 36 and verse 26 is perhaps the clearest Old Testament passage on the new birth. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Some might say that since that's a prophecy of a future phenomenon, that no one in the Old Testament was being born again. But the point in in Ezekiel 36 is not that some people will begin to be born again in the future. The point is that the whole house of Israel will be. In other words... The, the addressee of the prophecy in Ezekiel 36, 22 is the house of Israel. And God is saying to the house of Israel, I will cause you to be born again. In other words, this is a prophecy of 
the coming kingdom. This is a prophecy of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is a prophecy of the ingathering of the elect. This is the prophecy of everyone in the new covenant knowing the Lord so that they don't need to teach their neighbors saying, know the Lord, so on and so forth. This is addressed to the house of Israel as a whole, indicating that the house of Israel would experience a collective renewal and revival whereby God would regenerate their hearts. And so it's not actually saying, it's not actually suggesting that no one up until that point had been born again. Quite the opposite is true. All within Israel and outside Israel, whom God had been saving from sin, whom God had been uniting to the person of the Messiah by grace through faith, thus that they would be saved. All of them, all of them, each and every one, had already been experiencing the new birth since the beginning of redemption. This is a necessary consequence of clear New Testament teaching. Like John chapter 3 and verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we read, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. It was the kingdom that people like Abraham were waiting for. It was the kingdom that people like David were waiting for. So unless they had been born again, they never could have waited for it. They never could have seen it. They never could have longed for it. Abraham never could have rejoiced to see Jesus' day, the coming of the kingdom of God. Or 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. It speaks about those outside of the gospel, outside of Christ Jesus. Unbelievers, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's just making a statement about humanity outside of Christ. God of this world has blinded their eyes. We could turn to Romans 1, where again it's just making a statement about humanity. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened verse 18 the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth he's just making a statement about humanity without the new birth in the old testament no one could have looked forward to the kingdom everyone would have been blind everyone would have suppressed the truth This is doctrinal synthesis. Yes, but we're supposed to do doctrinal synthesis. Jesus is rebuking Nicodemus for not doing doctrinal synthesis. 
Why don't you know this? Have you not thought about the nature of man? Have you not thought about the effects of sin upon the human person? Have you not thought about the necessity of the new birth until now? Is this brand new to you and yet you're a teacher of Israel? So it is the Spirit, Jesus teaches us, who gives the new birth. And He does so sovereignly, manifestly, and mysteriously. The Old Testament and the New Testament bear witness to its necessity. Therefore, as we sing sometimes, I cannot cause my soul to live. As chapter 9 Paragraph 3 of the 1689 Confession states, it's printed on the inside of your program. Look at the end. Paragraph 3. I paraphrased it in my notes, so let me quote it. They cannot convert themselves by their own strength, listen, or prepare themselves for conversion. I cannot cause my soul to live. In fact, I can't even prepare my soul to be caused to live. You must be born again. Is a statement of fact then. Not actually an imperative to obey. It's just a statement of fact. If you want to go to Animal Flower Cave, you must travel north. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. It's a statement of fact. So what is the point of telling people they need to experience something that they can't cause themselves to experience? So that you can win doctrinal debates with those outside of our camp and prove to them the work of God is sovereign says right here. What's the point? What's the real point? The work of God is sovereign. But what's the point of stating that? Telling that? What's the point of impressing on people? Unbelievers outside of the faith. You cannot cause your soul to live. You must be born again. You need a work of the Spirit. Sovereign work of the Spirit. A manifest work of the Spirit. A mysterious work of the Spirit that you can't give yourself. You can't summon Him. What's the point of telling people that? One point, and the point of telling unbelievers that, is to put an end to counterproductive spiritual pursuits. Let me give you a couple of analogies. You could imagine an animal, doesn't matter which animal, a cow, a horse, a dog, stuck in a barbed wire fence. Most likely they're going to thrash all around. But thrashing all around is most likely not going to get them less tangled in the fence. It's going to get them more tangled in the fence. And if you go over to help them, you try to get them to be still so that you can pull the barbed wire out. That would be what would actually help them. Would be to stop their counterproductive attempts to get free from the fence. 
We tell people, you must be born again. With a similar end in mind. Stop struggling. Stop in any other way looking for life. Looking for a connection to God. We tell the Jews, stop all the activities of religion that you're banking so much on. Looking for the kingdom of God in all the ways that you're looking for it right now. You're missing it. And unless you're born again, you're never going to see that kingdom that you're ostensibly looking for. You're never going to find that Messiah that you're ostensibly looking for. We tell cultural Christians, stop coming to church and acting the part. Stop just going through the motions when you've never been changed. Realize that these that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is fundamentally, Christians are fundamentally those who have been changed by God. Stop trying to change yourself. Stop trying to conjure up some spiritual experience. Stop trying in this way or that way, whatever it is. Whatever, like the animal, trying to get free from the barbed wire fence. Stop everything else. You need to be born again before anything else. That's what Jesus does here with Nicodemus. You want to talk to me about the kingdom of God? The first thing we should talk about is that you need to be born again. Jew, cultural Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist. You want to talk about spiritual realities? The first thing we should talk about is that you need to be born again. You're never going to get unstuck from the fence any other way. Another analogy, which was acted out in our house very recently. If a child eats too much hot sauce and their mouth is burning, they may go despite your warnings for the water instead of waiting for the milk. And they may gulp down water and find that the spice is caused by oil in the hot sauce which water just spreads around in your mouth and your throat and makes it worse in their efforts to gulp down more and more water are actually not only useless but counterproductive and they'd be better to wait for the milk which would actually give them some relief So we tell people, all of these religious things you're doing without being born again is not only not helpful, it's counterproductive. You're not getting closer to God. The farther that you run in religious pursuits apart from the new birth, the more and more you're actually just heaping up condemnation for yourself. Seeking salvation outside of the one true God.
point of proclaiming the new birth, the necessity of the new birth to unbelievers, is to put an end to counterproductive spiritual pursuits. The point of preaching the new birth to believers is that we may better glorify God. We talked earlier about how there's some mystery in the Spirit's work. That doesn't mean that everything you don't know is mystery. You can learn some things. And maybe last week or an hour ago before I started preaching, ten years ago, you would have said, I caused myself to be born again. And now you've learned. You didn't. The Spirit gave you the new birth. That deepens your experience of grace. And it ought to elicit doxology, that's praise from your heart. God caused me to be born again. The Spirit worked sovereignly, manifestly, mysteriously in my heart to make me new. And so we glorify God more. Perhaps before you might not have said I caused myself, but perhaps you would have said, I don't know. One thing I do know though, I was blind but now I see. And now you say, oh, I know. The Spirit did that. The Spirit did that. And again, it elicits doxology, praise from your heart for God. You realize now, in view of the nature of the new birth, the mechanics of the new birth, that you're not a Christian because you're smarter, better, wiser, more receptive than your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. You would have been just as blind. You would have been just as dead in your trespasses and sins to this day had not the Spirit worked sovereignly and manifestly and mysteriously upon you. Had not the wind blown into your life as He wished. There you would go, but for the grace of God. You're a Christian because God the Father planned to save you. Because Jesus, the Son, came and died for you. Because God, the Holy Spirit, gave you the new birth. That planning, that accomplishing, and that applying was all done by God. To the praise of His glorious grace. So part of proclaiming the new birth is to put an end to the counterproductive spiritual pursuits of unbelievers. Stop trying to get out of the fence. Stop thinking that the water is going to quench the burning sensation in your mouth. The only way you're going to get free, the only way you're going to get relief is by the new birth. But as far as proclaiming to believers, the point is that we would glorify God. That we would worship Him all the more deeply and devotedly. That we would praise all the more enthusiastically, all the more vigorously. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And even at that time, God made us alive together with Christ.
long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. That's when my chains fell off. My heart was free. When his eye diffused a quickening ray. And so we praise. And so we worship the God who gave us the new birth.